Welcome to In Vino Fabulum podcast. I'm Patrice. And I'm Laura. We're your co-hosts for the In Vino Fabulum. That means in wine story. We think there are a number of tales to be shared about women in wine. This is a space to offer a narrative and chat about both. Welcome to today's episode. We're excited to chat with Justine Vanden Heuvel to talk about her role as an associate professor in plant science at Cornell University, where her research focuses on optimizing flavors and aromas in wine grapes and improving both the environmental and economic sustainability of wine grape production systems in cool climates and the experiences of women in the wine industry. So I can't wait to learn more about what that is all about, Justine. I'm thinking uh, I chose the wrong career path now reading this bio. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so beyond uh, the very short introduction that I offered in your bio, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your journey to uh, being a professor at Cornell? Uh, sure. So... I became interested in agriculture when I was in high school and I worked at an apple farm and I thought, this is amazing. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a farmer. And then I realized that's really expensive. If you're not born into a farm family, <laughs> good luck, right? Yeah. Land is yeah. pricey. Uh, so then academia was my next best uh, thing. So I studied apples for a while. Uh, and then as an undergraduate, I worked for the viticulturist at the University of Guelph. And I realized grapes were fascinating because there's hundreds of secondary metabolites, compounds that are produced by the plant that are responsible for flavors and aromas. And it's, it makes it such an interesting system to study uh, from a plant perspective, right? I, I used to work in cranberries, for example, and I loved working mm -hmm. in cranberries, but what do people care about for cranberries? They care that they, they're big and they're red, and that's it. But mm -hmm. for wine, there's literally hundreds and hundreds of compounds that in differing balances uh, produce very different wines. So it's a fascinating system to work in. Uh, very cool. First off, you and I both went to the same uh, school, University of Guelph. I'm a, I'm a Griffin as well. Is that right? Wow, there's just Small not enough of us around here. I know, I know. <laughs> um, for those who don't know, uh, University of Guelph has a large farm area that surrounds it. It used to be um, an Aggie, or they used to call it the Dipper School, as well as other schools, but a big agricultural program that it sounds like you were a part of then at that, Justine. That's right, yes. Uh, I actually did my undergraduate as well as my graduate work at the University of Guelph and loved every moment of it. Me too. Best farmer's market ever, I swear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, difficult to say in Ithaca. I would yeah. say it's comparable yeah. to the Ithaca farmer's market. It's okay. awesome. Yeah. yeah, Ithaca does have a top-notch uh, farmer's market. Um, so I know, you know, there's always a lot of talk on campus about the wine tasting course. Is that the one that you teach, or do you teach a, a different course related to wine? No, I co-teach a different one. So when people okay. talk about the wines class, the famous wines class that people fail, uh, that <laughs> was taught over in the hotel school by Professor Cheryl Stanley. Okay. And that course focuses uh, very much on wine appreciation, the wines of the world, uh, what the styles are coming from those different regions. I co-teach the Cal's Wines and Vines course, which is from a very different perspective, and that is an introduction to the science of how we grow grapes and how we make wines. So we still taste a large number of wines, usually four to six uh, per class, 
But those wines are focused on learning about differences, for example, between cultivars, between uh, how different wines can taste when they're grown on different training systems or whether they're own rooted or, or with a rootstock or if you take the same must but divide it into two and do your fermentations with different uh, commercial yeasts. So we very much focus on the production aspect of grapes and wines. Can I ask you to break down, I like the CALS, by the way, because I was reading your featured in the periodic CALS. Can you explain what CALS stands for? Oh, sure. So CALS is the College of Agriculture and the Life Sciences here at Cornell University. So uh, we're in the agricultural part of the school. And for that reason, our course focuses very much on the production aspects of wine rather than specifically on wine appreciation. Okay. So as somewhat lay people, what are some uh, key takeaways or things that we should know about wine production and be more appreciative of? So that's a good question. Uh, I think a few important things about wine production. Number one would be great wine truly is made in the vineyard. It's always the winemaker that gets the rock star status, right? Mm -hmm. Have you ever picked up Wine Spectator or or Wine Advocate Mm -hmm. and seen the vineyard manager on the cover? That just doesn't happen, right? That's not the cool thing. But the best winemaker in the world cannot make a great wine from terrible grapes. Mm -hmm. And so when we're thinking about a lot of the different aspects we like about wines, particularly different flavors and aromas, those come from more specifically the vineyard than the winery. So, for example, if you're thinking about uh, Rieslings and whether you really like a Riesling that's uh, sort of really acidic and steely or whether you really like the more flowery ones, those come from different things that we do in the vineyard, either uh, different... Uh, vineyard practices that we might do or from different uh, climates or different sites. So, so many of the different wines we like are very specifically linked to the vineyard. Yeah, because it's the region, uh, the climate and the soil, like soils from even different escarpments can change the the viticulture is what I've learned. Absolutely. Well, if you think about uh, Pinot Noir, for example, Pinot Noir has a big fam- uh, following, but Pinot Noirs are very, very different from around the world. If you take a Burgundian Pinot Noir and compare it to some of the Pinot Noirs coming out of California, I would argue those are, are barely the same wine, right? It's, right. It's, it's hard to pick out similarities because not only are they from different growing regions and have different climates, but they're very different viticultural practices that are used in those regions as well. Okay. And with that in mind, we, of course, are curious if you have a favorite wine. Uh, lots of favorites, I suppose. <laughs> uh, it's it's difficult to say, and, and I'm hesitant to say, because I work with uh, the wine industry. Mm-hmm. I'm a very big fan of the Finger Lakes Riesling wines. I think they're an excellent representation of what we can do. And I think they rival some of the very best uh, in the world. I tend to prefer cool climate wine. So I'm also a big fan. Uh, I had mentioned I was at the University of Guelph in Ontario. I love the Ontario wines um, that come from the Niagara region. I think they are 
absolutely fantastic, plus a really good value for what they are. I tend to favor cool climate wines over warm climates because they tend to be lower in alcohol. And for my palate, I just find higher alcohol wines sometimes a little overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. I have a bias, though, because I'm from Ontario. So I'm a Beamsville bench kind of girl. The oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. And, and, and there's a place in the market for, for wines that are coming in above 14%. And there are lots of people that, that do like them. Um, they just don't tend to be the wines that I seek out very often. Yeah. Right. And affordability is something when you have more of that in the market. And I'm, I'm guessing the Finger Lakes is similar to some of the VQA Ontario wines, because when you have more of the cost of a bottle, it could be 12 or $15 for a really good bottle of wine. Right. Yeah. And the wines are uh, somewhat similar. I mean, at least there's that cool climate link. I find uh, our Rieslings here tend to be a little bit different. They don't have as strong of a lime component, okay. uh, but they do have a little bit more of a floral note in many instances. Hmm. And being, you know, one of the things that we, talk about some, you know, with some of our guests are whether there are, you know, challenges for women who are entering that career or industry. And so I was wondering both from the standpoint of the wine industry, as well as just, you know, the track and being a faculty member, can you speak to any uh, challenges or barriers you've faced or mention even better, you know, specific supports or things that, you know, encouraged you along the way? Sure. Well, the program I came from at the University of Guelph uh, was Dr. Helen Fisher, who was probably one of the earliest of female viticulturists. So I had a very good role model there. But uh, certainly, I think I've been lucky in my career in terms of the people I've been interacting with. But there's no doubt that there are biases that people don't even know that they have, right? Mm -hmm. And I think particularly when it comes to viticulture, it is a a very male-dominated industry. So when I'm meeting with uh, viticulturists and vineyard managers here in the Finger Lakes, there's a few who are women, but not nearly the number that I would like Mm -hmm. to see. Uh, And I have certainly felt that sometimes people have uh, biases and perhaps think that I'm not going to be able to contribute as much as my predecessor in this this research position uh, because I'm a woman. I think, thankfully, that's changing. Uh, And when it comes to Cornell, there are so many uh, fantastic female faculty members who have come before me that it's it's, uh, a comforting feeling to know that others have, have been through this and and succeeded or, or done much better than, than succeeded. That's great. And I was, I was going to ask, so let's say some of us are rethinking our life goals and we want to go into a different academic field or into production. Um, I know of some community colleges um, back home that offer a couple of year program. Um, if you want to share, do you ever offer any sort of postdoc programs at Cornell? So Let's say you um, want, some of us want to change their PhD to go into wine or gin making. Let's say I want to do that. <laughs> um, what, what kind of avenues would one go into or one explore if they wanted to do something like that? 
So I think for people who are looking to make a change into industry, uh, the Master of Professional Studies program at Cornell is probably the best bet to do that. So, <clears throat> pardon me, we do have graduate uh, programs. So we offer an undergraduate degree through uh, Cornell in the College of Ag and Life Sciences uh, in Viticulture and Enology. It's a small uh, but growing program. And part of the reason it's small is that when 17-year-olds are applying to college, they don't have on their radar that they want to be a, a vineyardist or, or a winemaker, right? They're not old enough to drink wine. So we tend to get more students who become interested when they're here and transfer into the program. In terms of graduate degrees, there are MS and PhD uh, programs, but for people looking for industry, the Master of Professional Studies is a really strong option. It's it has been designed specifically for people who have an undergraduate degree in a different field and then want to make that change into the grape and, and wine world. So they come for uh, two semesters here at Cornell and take about 30 credits uh, worth of 4,000 and upper level courses. So, so senior level courses or graduate level courses. And then they get this master's of professional studies, which... Uh, has the ability to really launch them into the wine industry. That's great. And with that professional studies, is there kind of an apprenticeship model that I've seen at some other programs or um, experiences in vineyards? Uh, so we certainly hope that our students will do that. We don't require an internship um, for the Masters of Professional Studies. Many of our students who have completed those have, have left at Cornell and then gone on uh, on an internship. And so often what students will do is, is graduate from here and then they can go directly into a job and they're not going in as head winemaker or viticulturist, but they can go in as an assistant winemaker or, or assistant viticulturist. Uh, or what some students will uh, do is do a series of internships. So they'll go down to New Zealand to do a harvest, come up to France, do a harvest, go to Australia, do a harvest, um, come up to California, for example. And they sort of hop around the world and get some experience in different wineries and different wine regions before they settle down into a more permanent job. And the students who do that uh, tend to do really, really well because they've got this fantastic experience that they can then apply uh, wherever they're working. So I definitely picked the wrong career path. Mm -hmm. I'm taking notes, <laughs> so don't worry. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, say, I, was, I think people who work in the, in the grape and wine industry are often pretty happy, right? Because <laughs> it's, a, it's a really nice thing to work in is out in the vineyard or, or in a winery with uh, a product that people enjoy so much. It's true. Okay. Absolutely. So one of the, one of the things I we like to hear from is if there's a particular story that you might want to share, and this could be something funny that happened, or maybe something that's uh, you know going on in the news that resonates with you, or a special moment with a student that resonates you. But is there is there a story you might like to share with us? Um, sure. So. Uh, hopefully this is what you had in mind. Um, so I teach, so I co-teach the wines and vines course here and then a sophomore course called Grapes to Wines. And then for fun, I put together a course with a colleague in classics called Wine Culture, where we study the interaction of people and wine over the millennia. So from ancient Greece and ancient Rome right up through today. 
As part of this, we have been planning to put together a student trip in two years to southern Italy, uh, which is really the, the, it's not the cradle of viticulture because the uh, wine production really started in, in Georgia, but it's it's an archaeological trove of treasures when it relates to, to grapes and wines. So I was over there and, and looking at a few things that we might be able to include in the trip. And so we're visiting these incredibly historic vineyards and tasting wine that comes from 500-year-old vines. Wow. Uh, an absolutely incredible experience. But the best part was I had called a, a colleague, a friend of a colleague at University of Naples and asked about visiting with them and he arranged for a tour uh, behind the scenes in Pompeii in the research area, uh, including with the uh, archaeobotanist. So the person who works on all the ancient plants that they found uh, at Pompeii. And then at Pompeii, they are redoing uh, all of the vineyards. I think they found seven vineyard blocks total. And a company called Maestro Bernardino, which is uh, one of the oldest wine companies in Italy, is leading the charge to restore these vineyards, uh, hopefully to how they were in the days of Pompeii. So they're not open to the public at all, uh, but we were able, able to uh, visit those vineyards in Pompeii with the agronomist and the archaeobotanist and talk about sort of pieces together the uh, archaeology of what these vineyards had had looked like and how they were growing uh, wine grapes and making wine in Pompeii. It was an absolutely incredible experience. I can't tell you how fantastic it was. One, that sounds wow. amazing. Two, you've just said two new job titles that I may have to look into. Agronomist? Is that, what is it? Agron- Ag- agronomist. So, an, uh, yeah, an agronomist is a person who... Um, who basically, yeah, works in agriculture, uh, specifically on agricultural practices. Nice. That's a fancy name. But there's, a, there's a fantastic book I would uh, recommend that I got connected to when I was over there, and it's called The Gardens of Pompeii, okay. uh, Herculaneum and the Villas Destroyed by Vesuvius, and uh, it's by an archaeologist called uh, Yashemsky, and she does a fantastic job. She's got a chapter on uh, vineyards at Pompeii and a chapter on milking wine at Pompeii, and it's uh, amazingly interesting reading. Hmm. Wow, that just sounds fascinating. And I absolutely think that you need an instructional designer to tag along on that trip to help you out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We had a lot of offers for graduates <laughs> who wanted to come in TA and that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. And and I never knew there was archaeologists uh, botanists, so I was like, oh, that's another role as well. It's great. Yeah, that's so oh, great. yeah. Yeah, it's great. So this colleague of mine at the University of Naples, he and his team have now gotten access to uh, 50,000 grape seeds that they found at Pompeii. And so now they're trying to figure out how they're going to do the genetic analysis because the question is, were they growing those older cultivars that are still in that region? You know, if they test those, are they finding things like Alianico or Pidioroso or Falingina? Uh, because those are cultivars that still in, exist in Campania and uh, aren't really grown outside of that area. So it's going to be fascinating to see what comes up. Interesting. I think we may need to include a glossary for this episode. Yeah, I'm going to have to do some research <laughs> at the end for the show notes. Don't worry, we're going to include that book and all the other things I mentioned. So great. Yeah. So I'm wondering, uh, this is a little, I think a little bit 
uh, veering away from wine. But when I was looking at your, you know, the uh, your web page, it I saw that you participated in the Public Voices Fellow Program. That's right. That's and, in 2016. Um, okay, and uh, another faculty member, Marianne Krasny, that I've done some work with, also participated in that and told me about it. And I've been really interested in. Uh, in participating. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit, you know, about what the program is and, you know, what, what you've, um, what you learned and what you've done since you participated. Sure. So that was an interesting fellowship, uh, that was offered through the provost office for faculty diversity. And I might not have that office name correct. Um, but it was a group called, uh, public voices, and they offer these opportunities for academics to learn to write for non-academics, because what we're really good at is writing scientific publications, right? Mm -hmm. I'm actually pretty good at mm -hmm. that, uh, but that it's really hard sometimes to write for the general public and get people interested in what you're doing. If I write a scientific publication, there's probably maybe five people who actually read the full thing. Uh, but when you write something and publish it in the New York Times or the Huffington Post or the Guardian, then your readership increases exponentially. So that's what the fellowship was, is we were learning, working with journalists uh, who published frequently, and they were working with us to write about not only our work, but, but other things that might feel really important to us and, uh, and get that word out there. Now, the fellowship was specifically uh, for women and minorities because when you look at the statistics, and I don't remember the exact uh, number, but when you look at op-eds that are, are published throughout the United States, for example, something like 90% of them are written by white men. And so what they're trying to do is add diversity to the voices that are leading the conversation. That's so important because I think it's representation of what's being shared, the knowledge being shared, and also making it accessible for others who aren't in academia and aren't going to read the 30-page journal article with scientific charts and graphs and tables. Um, right. And it was really fun um, to have that opportunity to do that. So, And I found as, as my articles went on, I explored a little more. So the first one I, I wrote was about the need for maintaining genetic diversity in wine grapes. So if you followed the conversation about bananas at all, there's a, a big fungal threat to bananas. And the problem is we all eat one single cultivar of bananas. Mm -hmm. That's all that's grown is a banana called Cavendish. And when you look at the popular wine grapes, they're all really, really closely related to each other. And so I was arguing for the need for uh, genetic diversity, so use of interspecific hybrids and that sort of thing. Uh, but then as, as I became more confident, then, for example, I worked with uh, Dr. Catherine Kinsler, who's in psychology, and we wrote an op-ed together that was published in the New York Times about um, whether uh, the wine culture that we have here in the United States, so the fact that kids don't sort of sample little bits of wine at home like they do in many of the other European countries, and whether that contributes to a lot of the binge drinking problems uh, that we see. Mm. I'm, I'm 
biased to say I think it does because I, th- I think it makes a difference if you have it with a meal and it's social and it's part of the family or culture. I, I think that's interesting. I'm going to find that piece and add mm. that to the notes because I want to read that. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question, and I th- there's certainly uh, no proof either way, but there are a number of studies that point in that direction. So certainly if you look at somewhere like Italy, uh, in the regions where they grow wine grapes and have a very strong wine culture, uh, the alcohol abuse is actually lower than in regions where they don't have that very strong connection to wine. Hmm. That's really interesting. Did you um, gain anything else from your experiences from writing op-eds that makes your academic writing different now, that that you think differently about it? Uh, I'm not sure that it really changed my academic writing. I think what it made me realize is that I can be considered more of a specialist than I would think in my area in academia. So I think in in academia, we tend to focus very specifically on a narrow, narrow area. We say that is my specialty Mm -hmm. and you can't ask me about Mm -hmm. anything else. But then I realized I can talk about other things. I can, I can talk about general agricultural topics and, and agriculture and climate change and general wine topics uh, and still be considered an expert. So I found it a really valuable experience to complete the fellowship. Hmm. So as you were talking about that, it made me think about in a lot of industries, you know, we talk about the importance of having diversity and a lot of different viewpoints in some ways from the standpoint of design. So for example, like when they, when they designed airbags, it was an all male team. And so airbags started killing women because they didn't design them for, you know, people with smaller frames and smaller bodies. Um, And there's, you know, a lot of examples in industry. And of course, also there's a lot of research that supports that, you know, diverse teams are more creative. Uh, Is there any sense, you know, you mentioned that the industry is very male dominated. Is there any sense um, that that permeates through the way wine is marketed or the types of wines that are made or, you know, what impact would you see on the industry as it becomes more diverse, if any? You know, that is a good question and I'd have to really think about that. I think as we see diversity coming into the industry more, uh, I would say that we see more specific marketing campaigns Uh, and wines that are often designed to appeal specifically to one or two different cultural groups. And that didn't really happen that much in the past, right? I mean, there were some exceptions, but if you think about 50 years ago, people made a wine from the property they had, and they put it out, and they hoped that that people bought it. Mm-hmm. I think there's more of a recognition now that certain segments of the population are are searching for different wines and targeting that. And I think uh, there, that has added some gender diversity um, or the idea of gender diversity to, to marketing of wines and cultural diversity as well. Okay. Do you ever miss working with apples? I know you moved from apples to grapes, but uh, do you ever work with other fruits in terms of uh, wine, viticulture? 
Uh, no, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm interested in all fruit crops and I enjoyed, uh, working with apples and working with cranberries and my master's was on, uh, raspberries. I don't really enjoy wines that aren't milled from grapes. When I worked in cranberries, many people would give me bottles of, of cranberry wine and maybe I'm a bit of a wine snob, um, <laughs> but I would say I prefer wines made from grapes. Yeah, me too. I have had I had a plum wine in Japan, and I was like, it's not it's not the same. It's nice, but not the same. Yeah, yeah it's it's a it's a different mindset uh, when you approach those wines for mm-hmm. sure. And you know, I think that applies to to some of the interspecific hybrids that I was talking about earlier. That we grow up here in New York, they're commonly uh, accepted up here, but really not around many other regions in the country and you have to have a different mindset for for some of those wines as well uh and when you convert to that mindset you find they can be quite enjoyable but you have to not be expecting a traditional vinifera or european style wine and is there any advantage or what might the advantage be a lot of times i see you know organic wines out there are those do they taste different or is it really just if you you know want something that's organic so uh i I can answer this question but it it will be with a little bit of of perhaps my personal bias uh involved in it i i don't know of a good study that has actually compared um organic wines uh to non-organic wines. I know there have been studies about whether people will pay more for them, uh, but in terms of composition or quality, there really hasn't been much done. Here in the United States, we have an organic program uh, called the National Organic Program run by the USDA. Uh, If you want to be certified organic, then you can only use products that come from a list that is provided by the National Organic uh, Program. And for products to get on that list, they just have to come from a natural source. So my concern about growing grapes organically in the United States under the current guidelines is that sometimes it can be a much more sustainable choice for growers. Other times, not so much. We actually had an organic vineyard here at Cornell that we planted in 2010 and operated until 2016 uh, right here on campus in our vineyards at, at Cornell Orchards. The problem is that we ended up with a disease in there called black rot that there's mm-hmm. really no good organic control for. And the or- only organic control for it is copper, but the problem with copper is that it's a heavy metal, right? It's a mm. phytotoxic to invertebrates. It's persistent in the soil, so it doesn't break down. So you can follow the organic guidelines and spray copper, copper, and more copper. And that's not sustainable, but it is still organic. So I think organic growing works great in hot, dry regions where they don't have to worry as much about fungal diseases. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think it, it makes the most sense. Here in the Northeast, it's difficult to do, and I don't think it's always as sustainable as um, some of the more traditional choices um, that may break down uh, much more rapid, rapidly or target only a specific organism mm-hmm. instead of a broad range of organisms. Mm. So first, I didn't realize we had vineyards on the Cornell campus. 
are those um, open to the public to visit or? Uh, yeah, so we have vineyards at uh, Cornell Orchards, which mm-hmm. is our teaching farm uh, on 366 yep. um, Dryden Road. And yes, yeah, so you can go and walk around there during the day as long as there's not a sign up that says um, says that you can't go onto the property mm-hmm. if there's something going on. And so we use those because it's, it's nice and close for the students in terms of going back and forth uh, mm-hmm. during the week. And then we actually have a farm that's run by the Cornell University Agricultural Experiment Station, which is up on the east side of Cayuga Lake on Sweezy Road, so just past the Lansing High Schools. And there we have our vinifera vineyard. So we have uh, Riesling, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, Lemberger, and Cabernet Franc that grow there. And it's a beautiful site because it's right next to the lake and it's moderated. So those vines are a little more protected from the cold. And so we sometimes uh, bust the students up there to work with those vines as well. And are, are, is wine made from those? Like, could somebody purchase a Cornell wine? So wine is made from them, but it's not available for purchase. We don't have a okay. commercial license for the program here, mm-hmm. uh, but we do. We make wines uh, from the different teaching vineyards. The students make wines in a series of different courses that they have, so they get a lot of hands-on experience. We have a teaching winery that opened a few years ago at Stocking Hall that is really nicely outfitted and uh, works very well for teaching students who are in the viticulture and enology major or the minor as well. Wow. I have not been taking advantage of these amazing class opportunities. <laughs> right. <laughs> and when it comes to actually having the ability to make wine, uh, it's specifically reserved for majors and minors in the program because uh, we just don't have room in the winery. Uh, yeah. But our larger introductory classes are open to everyone. And one thing I will say about the student wines It sounds really fun, and it is fun, and they do a great job. When we taste those at the end of the semester, (laughs) sometimes I'm amazed at how good they are, and sometimes it's uh, quite the opposite. (laughs) Something will have gone wrong, and the students know it, right? And it's a great learning opportunity, uh, but it's not always pleasant when we taste those wines at the end. Sure. (laughs) No, that's good. Um, when you were talking about the problem you had in the vineyard, uh, it made me think of, I worked with some of the faculty developing the science and politics of the GMO MOOC, and I was wondering if there's any GMO controversy within the wine industry. There's no GMO controversy because there's really no discussion about it. Okay. So one thing about about grapes and wines is that people really seek out the cultivars that they know. So when people go to the wine store, uh, more often than seeking out a region, they tend to seek out a cultivar. So they specifically want to purchase Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot or a Cabernet Franc or Sauvignon Blanc, for example. And so the problem with GMOs Uh, from the perspective of the wine industry, is that if they used them, they wouldn't have those traditional cultivar names. Mm -hmm. And that makes it really hard. It's really hard to sell a wine when it's a name that isn't recognized as one of those international cultivars. So there are research programs that uh, work with GMO vines uh, from a scientific perspective. So to ask uh, questions about what happens if you turn this gene on or off, But from an industry perspective, there's no interest in actually introducing GMO cultivars into vineyards. Hmm. 
Okay. Um, and is there any uh, anything that we have not chatted about today that you'd like to mention before we wrap up? Um, How many advisees do you have and are you taking new ones? That's the other question I have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't. Uh, I can't think of uh, anything in particular. Uh, if you guys have any other questions, I'm happy to answer them. Um, I had one final question that I'm not sure if you do, Laura. But we, uh, in between doing the interviews like this, Laura and I have been doing some short vignettes where we talk about a specific aspect, you know, related to wine. And one of our recent ones had to do with, you know, wine glasses and the type of wine glasses that people use. So from that standpoint, I was wondering if how you felt about wine glasses and the type of wine glass that you like to drink your wine out of. Yeah, so wine glass does make a big difference. And uh, usually I'm not a person who buys into much of the gimmicky side of, of wine. But so much of what we enjoy about wine is actually the volatiles. Um, so the gaseous compounds that collect above the wine in the headspace, um, so at the top of the glass. And that gives us so much of our enjoyment of wine. And if you have a glass that dulls that, uh, I have found that there is a world of difference. And so... For my normal, everyday uh, drinking wine, I, I use uh, standard ISO glasses, they're, they're called. But if we have a particularly nice wine, so for example, I do have champagne flutes. I do have a separate set of uh, Ontario ice wine glasses that were uh, produced specifically for Ontario ice wine. And I have found it does make a world of difference to work with the correct glass so that you really get to enjoy those volatile compounds that's good to know this has been great to hear from you and i we've i've taken some notes on the side i have to follow up and this is great well thanks thanks so much and uh we'll have to meet face to face on campus sometime yeah sounds good <laughs> great thanks have a good night guys all right thanks. take care bye yeah. bye now so this was another episode of in vino fabulum in wine story we appreciate that everything that Justine has shared about her story and what she does in the world of wine and winemaking and viticulture. It's been very educational, hasn't it? It has been extremely educational, yes. I need to go back and do a little more research and make a, a show notes glossary for this episode. Absolutely. So resources and reads mentioned in this episode, we'll be sure to curate these and include these on the website, 3wedu.wordpress.com. And we'd love to continue the conversation with you. So if you have a question about wine, about uh, women working in wine, uh, something related to you that you heard that you want us to expand upon on today's intro masterclass to viticulture, please let us know. Uh, send us a tweet at 3wedu. And we always welcome email at invinofabulum at gmail.com found in the show notes. So until we meet again. Yep. Cheers. Thanks, everyone. Until next time.